Good evening, or should I say, buonasera, or maybe even in the Slovenian tongue, which is my mother's background, I could say, dobeveče. Um, this is an unusual time to be taping authentic biochemistry. By the way, that's what it is. This isn't vocabulary and translational um, vocabulary 101 coming to you from uh, Orono, Maine. This is authentic biochemistry coming to you from the inland Pacific Northwest. And this is indeed Dr. Daniel Guerra. So anyway, buona sera. Um, I'm giving this talk in the evening, late evening, actually, because tomorrow... Uh, when I was planning on doing it, I've actually changed plans. I'm going to be going woodcutting with my son and some of his friends. So I'm uh, covering it tonight. So with that really interesting interlude and understanding of, of what's going on in my life personally, let's get back uh, to the discussion at hand, which is um, hepatocellular carcinoma. I want to make a mention that the last uh, inter um, segment I put in uh, this grouping of HCC. I think I named it uh, with a number that was in a correct. Um, I think this is actually the ninth segment for the pedocellular carcinoma series. Um, and if not, I'm not going to be worried about it because after all, Schubert symphonies have been misnumbered a couple of times, even by no less a person than Johannes Brahms, who also is the uh, guilty party that took a lot of Schubert symphonies. And uh, from what I understand, uh, rescored them so they sounded more romantic rather than classical. Now that, I think, is a bitter shame, although I do appreciate some of Brahms' music. I don't think that we should be listening to Schubert as a romantic composer. I think he was in the serious a vein of classicism, um, and he wrote classical symphonies for sure. But anyway, the numbering of seven, eight, the unfinished symphony, and nine has been in redoubt for a long time. So I don't feel bad that my authentic biochemistry segments on the paracellular carcinoma may have been misnumbered, even though this wasn't done posthumously. I'm not a composer, and someone else wasn't doing the numbering. It's been me all along. So let's get back to it. What we were discussing were um, protein convertases, right? And remember, these are proteases, and it's just a special name for them. We talked about the fact that there are protein convertases, which are proproteins or apoproproteins that need to be cleaved themselves before they're active. We talked about two of them, uh, PC1 and PC2. Uh, they can be synthesized, for PC1, for example, was synthesized as a 99 kilodalton pro form, converted to an 87 kilodalton um, uh, major active form, and then uh, cleaved one more time to a 66 kilodalton active form, all of this occurring in neuroendocrine cells. Um, so you have pre-protein convertases, and those enzymes uh, are, of course, responsible for the first step in the biosynthesis of insulin. So even the enzymes that process the peptide hormone insulin are themselves processed. That's the whole point here. All right. Now, we also mentioned last time that there are protease inhibitors. And that's what I want to get into today because eventually we are going to be able to get back to a pedocellular carcinoma. So um, first, let's mention here that there are some known 
deficiencies of protein convertases in man. One is PC1, which is one of the convertases responsible for insulin maturation. So interestingly enough, PC1 is also involved in T lymphocyte activation. <clears throat> T lymphocytes have serine proteases. And what those serine proteases do is provide um, T lymphocyte um, modulation into various subcellular types so that you get cell-mediated immunity to infection. Infection, that's what T lymphocytes do, of course. So the serpins, remember, those are serine protease inhibitors, actually control the recognition of antigen, uh, therefore effector function, and indeed homeostatic control of the T lymphocytes. And they do this through the inhibition of serine protease targets. So what that means is that serpins are important promoters of cellular viability because they inhibit the executioner proteases, which is what they're called when they're found in T lymphocytes. I love that term. And all of that that affects the survival and development of long-lived subclass of T cells called memory T cells. So really important in memory T lymphocyte regulation are these serpents. So I'm not going to uh, have enough time to really go into what kind of inhibition these inhibitors do, but it's basically a competitive inhibition where they're competing with the natural substrate, which in the case of uh, a protease would be the protease itself, right? So the protease would be competed against with the protease inhibitor. The inhibitor would bind to the enzyme, which is a convertase. And there's a couple of ways that that can happen. One is you can make an EI complex, which can be via rate constant, form a dead-end complex so that the enzyme is effectively dead. It can't disassociate from the inhibitor. Um, or it can produce an inhibitor which gets degraded and the enzyme which is unaffected. So it depends on the relative rate constants. And of course, it depends on the uh, nascent um, chemistry of the inhibitor and the inhibitor enzyme complex. So there's a lot more there to we could talk about in terms of just straight up enzyme kinetics and inhibition of enzyme activity. Uh, I just wanted to mention that to you, though. And these uh, protease inhibitors can form dead complexes or they can leave the enzyme completely unscathed but they can knock it out of commission for a while. And it depends a lot on what else is happening subcellularly. So that means what cell type you're talking about. And we can talk about that for sure if you want me to, but right now we're going to move on. So what I want to do now is link the proteases uh, and protease inhibitors to HCC. So if you have an inhibition of apoptotic pathways, now this is going to lead back into a lot of different kinds of disease states. But you can inhibit death pathways like apoptosis by serpents. In fact, the stimulation of death receptors, of course, which would normally lead to the activation of an enzyme called caspase 8 and the rupture of the mitochondria and release of cytochrome C, and then ultimately activating the caspase 9-3 pathway, all can be inhibited by a protein called cytokine response modifier A. CRIM-A, and that actually prevents programmed cell death initiated by, initiated by a variety of stimuli. So it basically blocks programmed cell death of the cells that express that 
cytokine response modifier A, which of course you would find in certain immune cells. So I'm not going to uh, spend a lot of time on discussing apoptosis, but you know you get in apoptosis, you know, we get degradation of nuclear DNA, and you get into what they call nucleosomal units. Um, and, and what how that happens is it occurs in response to all kinds of stimuli. That could be tissue damage. That could be uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines. That could be a change in pH. Uh, various stress stimuli can induce this phenomenon. Um, at, at any rate, you get a DNA. And that DNA is called a caspase-activated DNA, or CAD. And what it does is it cleaves chromosomal DNA into a caspase in a caspase-dependent manner. So the enzyme CAD itself is synthesized with the help of another protein called ICAD, of course. And ICAD means, take it here, it's really cool, inhibitor of CAD. And it works basically as a molecular chaperone for CAD. So CAD is found complex with ICAD in proliferating cells. So that would be like uh, tumor cells. When cells are induced to undergo apoptosis, a certain form of programmed cell death, which I told you how to do with this DNA fragmentation patterning, um, the caspases, in particular caspase 3, cleaves the ICAD to dissociate it from the CAD-ICAD complex. That allows CAD to cleave chromosomal DNA and then follow through on the program cell death. So cells that lack the ICAD or that express caspase-resistant mutant ICAD don't show DNA fragmentation during apoptosis, although they do exhibit sort of another kind of apoptosis and die, uh, ultimately. Uh, but they, what they do is they cause an inflammatory response because the cell doesn't commit suicide. It basically allows for subcellular conscience to be expressed on the surface of the cell, which means that it can induce chemokines and cytokines and generate an immune response. So I wanted you to be aware of that, that inhibitors of caspases will block apoptosis. So it's a very powerful ph physiological event, right? So that's what cer certain serpents can do. Sorry for me saying certain serpents, but there you go. So a loss of serpent activity or even specificity via mutation, say, would allow for uncontrolled serine protease activity. And that can result in cellular death that unfortunately is what we find in liver cirrhosis. So remember, cirrhosis leads to fibrogenesis, which leads to fibrosis, which can lead down that dark pathway to hepatocellular carcinoma. So the initial phases of cancer are actually a cellular death phenomenon. So if you don't have the serpents, you can have uncontrolled serine protease-mediated programmed cell death. So there's a compensation for liver tissue injury that actually, that actually paves the way for hepatocellular carcinoma, and that's that whole fibrogenesis step, right? So other considerations about serpents. Think about serpent specificity, its origin of secretion, what cell it comes from, its site of action. Those are all complicating factors. And, they can, and because they're complicating, um, they can promote, inhibit, or even initiate carcinogenesis. So serpents themselves, you can't just get a legion of pharmaceuticals to um, promote or to inhibit serpents. 
to control convertases, to control apoptosis, because it depends on what phase of the phenomenon of disease progression in the liver where this occurs. And as I just said, the specificity, origin of secretion, and the site of action of both the serpents and the proteases, which are the target of the serpents, to determine whether or not an inhibitor in any of those pathways, or indeed something that would promote the activity of serpents, may or may not be beneficial to the um, ultimate uh, ontogenesis and oncogenesis of the cellular events leading to a past-cellular carcinoma. So you get a lot of different things, uh, a lot of different uh, bits of information by reading journals that you would think have nothing to do with hepatocellular carcinoma. That's what I do in authentic biochemistry and what I indeed do in Bayer Med in my, in my company. So here's a paper that's published in 2014 in a journal called the Journal of Investigative Dermatology. Very clinically oriented paper, uh, uh, journal, excuse me. And this was published 24th of January, 2014. Uh, the title of the paper which tells you all about it, Elevated Circulation of an Anti-Angiogenic Serpent in Patients with Diabetic Microvascular Complications Impair Wound Healing Through a Suppression of Wnt Signaling. Wnt is a transcription factor controlling the expression of a lot of genes. So I'm just reading directly from the abstract. Wound healing, angiogenesis, and indeed hair follicle maintenance, now this is investigative dermatology here, are often impaired in the skin of diabetics. But the pathogenesis wasn't well understood. In this paper, they reported that the circulation levels of a, a protein called calistatin, that's calistatin with a K, which is a member of the serine protease inhibitor family of the serpents. So calistatin is a serpent. And it indeed has anti-angiogenic activity. And you find that elevated in type 2 diabetic patients who have diabetic vascular complications. So what that means is that you've got a protein, uh, the serpent, which is controlling, obviously, the uh, wind signaling via controlling the protease activity. And so you can get um, skin damage, you can get skin uh, lesions because of this high level of serpent, okay, which then is anti-angiogenic, and that anti-angiogenic activity causes the cell to necrose, and that's why people who have diabetic vascular complications, type 2 diabetics, have a lot of uh, tissues, peripheral tissues that tend to go through necrosis, right? This can happen particularly in the extended parts of their bodies, like their feet and their hands. So that's an interesting thing to keep in mind. So these serpents, you can't again, you can't just go and enhance them or knock them or knock them out because they're controlling a lot of other things, right? Including, as we just saw, the Frank immune response by controlling T lymphocyte memory cell uh, degradation and turnover, and indeed, actually, the activation of memory cells by controlling the proteases, which are necessary to induce T-cell-mediated activation. And that's leaving alone the apoptosis program cell death that you may want to have occurring in the middle of the tumor. Okay. So in some contexts, serpents are deleterious. They can prevent, for example, plasminogen, which is, again, a serine protease, 
It can prevent plasminogen-mediated fibrinolysis, as in clot destruction of arterial wall accumulation, as in atheromas. Okay, so here we're now talking about atherosclerotic plaques. So in general, high serpin, those are the inhibitors, can lead to cardiovascular disease and poor tissue repair. And again, linear with the last thing we discussed, this is seen in type 2 diabetes and in metabolic syndrome. So high circulating serpents can actually cause uh, a lack of destruction of the atheromas that are produced because of high levels of circulating lipoproteins, free fatty acids, triacylglycerol, glucose, occurring in obese people who also then develop type 2 diabetes, which is a pro-inflammatory disease, and then the associated metabolic syndrome. So all of that's true. However, the serpents may simultaneously prevent obesity-linked cancers. As we just told you, the serpents can, serpents can directly control these proteases, which can control the extracellular matrix degradation, which could prevent metastasis. <laughs> so that all, say, that all said, translational medicine needs to facilitate a bivalent, at least, approach to understanding serpent pharmacotherapies. Okay, I hope you got all that. It's pretty interesting. So here's a paper that published in Molecular Medicine Reports. January 14th, 2015, and I'm telling you the pages because you can't see uh, when I'm doing a podcast. The pages are 3203 uh, and ongoing. Okay, let me just break down what this paper is about. The tumor microenvironment correlates with drug resistance, tumorigenesis, progression, and metastasis. And so they be- all that becomes a molecular target, right? The tumor microenvironment. You have, of course, genetic instability, which is a hallmark of tumors. You get mutation related to that genetic instability. And it's typically not sufficient, though, most of that genetic instability and mutation is usually not sufficient to produce malignancy. If that were the case, we would all die of cancer at a much younger age. So that means the unique malignancy-promoting tumor microenvironment becomes necessary in the progression of a solid tumor and, in fact, indeed, in hematological malignancies. So there's an interaction between the tumor cells and the cancer-associated fibroblasts. These are called CAFs, or CAFs. They're also known as activated fibroblasts, and we talked about this at the very beginning of this cycle on HCC. They are, of course, involved in tumor pathology and the clinical refractory phenotype you find in many cancers. So CAFs, again, that these are these cancer-associated fibroblasts, are regularly observed in tumor stroma of numerous cancer lineages. So let's go to dig one level deeper. Fibroblast activation protein alpha, FAP alpha, is actually a transmembrane serine protease. Highly expressed in these CAFs, and it's actually present in greater than 90% of all human epithelial neoplasms. You know, they arise from the epithelia. So calves may be derived from, now get this, local resonant fibroblasts that undergo education by tumor cell-secreted cytokines. Secondly, bone marrow-derived mesenchymal stem cells. Third, cancer cells undergoing epithelial mesenchymal transition, EMT, And fourth, at least, and maybe there's more, 
endothelial cells, endothelial cells undergoing endothelial to mesenchymal transition. That's called endo-MT. So you have EMT, epithelial mesenchymal transition, and then you have endo-MT, which is endothelial to mesenchymal transition. Both those things can lead to tumors. Fibroblast activation protein alpha, then, is an important surface marker of these calves. Remember, the calves are cancer-associated fibroblasts. Several lines of evidence suggest that depletion of the FAP alpha, which is the serine protease, inhibits tumor growth and progression via an altered immune and, indeed, epigenetic phenomenal series. So... If you have a depletion of this FAP alpha, okay, that is a fibroblast activation protein alpha, okay? That's the protein we're, we're describing here. Is a, it's a, remember, it's a transmembrane serine protease. So if you deplete that, you see an inhibition of tumor growth and a progression via an altered immune and epigenetic phenomenon, okay? So it inhibits tumor growth and progression because it's altering the immune response in an epigenetic uh, mode. So this is all really interesting. It gets more and more complicated, right? So tumor cells um, secrete cytokines like TGF-beta, TNF-alpha, and they educate these resting fibroblasts, to be, which you can have, for example, in the liver near the liver parenchyma with higher expression of this FAP-alpha. FAP alpha through direct or an indirect contact, and this could include interacting with cytokines like IL-6 or MCP-1 or MIP or even IL-1 beta, all that supports tumor cell survival. So FAP alpha remodels the extracellular matrix, increases the invasive capacity and then the metastasis of those tumor cells. Okay, that's all bad. So FAP-alpha promotes cancer-associated fibroblasts to secrete MCP-1, which mediates a macrophage chemoattraction to the tumor microenvironment. So what all that then spells out to is the immune function of T-cells becomes suppressed by FAP-alpha. That's because of the... Um, uh, participation of these macrophages. So you get, an, you, you get immune energy, it's called, because of FAP-alpha, which is a serine protease. So this is how the whole thing works, okay? So it, it, once you block the T-cell, okay, what you've got then are tumor cells, which are then allowed not only to proliferate because of the d uh, uh, the deactivation of uh, the suppression of activity of division be due to apoptosis, but you also then have this invasive nature because of the kinds of surface markers that allow for the extracellular matrix to ultimately be degraded. So you get FAP alpha produced from the fibroblast. It generates a cancer-associated fibroblast or FAP, it uh, enhances via MCP1 the macrophage lineage, which promotes the tumor cells in this instance. The cancer-associated fibroblast itself promotes the tumor cells. And, the, once, and finally, the calf inhibits the T-cell-mediated uh, destruction of the tumor cells. So you don't get that. You also get 
the extracellular matrix being degraded, right? We just told you that because of protease activity. And then that leads the tumor cells to become invasive. And all of this can be regulated by cytokines, either pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory, depending on which valence of which cell type you're looking at. None of these, therefore, would be a direct, uniform, or unifical, univalent pharmaceutical target because they could be working in both ways. They can work from one one position to another. They can promote tumor genesis. They can inhibit tumor genesis, depending on where they are found and how they're activated. And, of course, the subcellular uh, expression and type that you find. So protease inhibitors can prevent matrix metalloproteinases. Okay, that's what they do. Therefore, they can prevent extracellular matrix degeneration. That's all good. So for example, PAI1, that's protease inhibitor one, okay, protease, protease inhibitor one, right, it will block the conversion of plasminogen to plasmin. And that's good if it's in a tumor because plasmin is going to cause the breakdown of the um, extracellular matrix because it's going to activate matrix metalloproteases. And it's also going to allow for fibrin dissolution, which is going to lead to those calf formations and FAP alpha formation and further associated metastasis. So you get all that? So here the inhibitor could be very useful right, within the tumor microenvironment. You got it? So now all of that, now listen to this. Serpents actually promote cancer cell survival and vascular co-option in a brain metastasis. This paper came out in February 2014 in the journal Cell. This is volume 156, pages 1002 and ongoing. This paper is about five years old. So you heard what you heard right. Serpents promote cancer cell survival and vascular co-option in brain metastasis. So Let's get through this really quick. I just told you all the good news about the cancer environment tumor, not the same in the central nervous system. So metastatic cells in the brain survive and grow attached to capillaries. The plasmin from the reactive stroma mobilizes a a protein called FASL to repel brain infiltrating cells. So plasmin from the reactive stroma mobilizes a protein called FASL that binds to FAS, that's this receptor, and that all causes a repel of the brain infiltrating cells. It blocks those. Plasmin additionally prevents vascular co-option by cleaving cancer cell lycan, which is a, a, a cellular associated metalloproteinase. So brain metastatic cells express serpents to prevent plasmin production. So the metastatic cells make serpent, which blocks plasmin because they, they're inhibitors of the plasminogen to plasmin conversion, right? So brain metastasis, of course, uh, is an ominous complication of cancer. We don't want to forget about it. And in fact, you can get brain metastasis from a primary liver tumor. So brain metastasis, ominous complication of cancer, but most cancer cells that infiltrate the brain usually die. Uh, and we don't really know why, probably because of the microglia. 
Here, this paper is identifying plasmin from the reactive brain stroma as a defense against this metastatic invasion. And the plasminogen activator inhibitory serpin are acting as a shield against that defense. Okay, that is not good. So plasmin, again, suppresses brain metastasis in two ways, by converting membrane-bound astrocytic FAS-L into a paracrine death signal for cancer cells, okay? and by inactivating the axon pathfinding molecule, which is the lycan, which metastatic cells express for spreading along the brain capillary bed, and, of course, for metastatic outgrowth. So brain metastatic cells from lung cancer and breast cancer express high levels of the anti-plasminogen activator serpents, including something called neuroserpin, because it's found in the CNS, and serpent beta-2, to prevent plasmin generation and its metastasis suppressive effects. So by protecting cancer cells from death signals, and fostering vascular co-option, anti-PA serpents provide a unifying mechanism for the initiation of brain metastasis in both lung and breast cancer as the primary cancers. So there again, there's a complete reversal of what we've been saying. So you think you understand something about serpents and you find out you go to a different system, you go to the cancer in the brain, right? Like a glioblastoma, and they work in actually the opposite way because you want plasminogen activator to make plasmin to be able to carry out this whole process of, of allowing FASL to repel brain-infiltrating tumor cells, you see. So it's, it's really, really complicated by the fact that, you know, you can't, you can't simply look at any of these proteins as, as a unit.